Welcome to my podcast, my dad podcast. This is the 1787 Project, the podcast version of the lectures for my socially distanced class on the U.S. Constitution at the University of Missouri. I'm your professor and host, Justin Dyer. But I said, something's wrong here. Something's really wrong. Can't have happened. And we fight. We fight like hell. And if you don't fight like hell, you're not going to have a country anymore. Was President Trump's speech on January 6th, just before the Capitol riots broke out, protected under the First Amendment? We're going to table that question for now and come back to it. But first, get low versus New York. During World War I, the New York criminal anarchy statute made it a crime to advocate the overthrow of the existing form of government of the state of New York by violence or publish or distribute any document that advocates the violent overthrow of the government or become a member of any organization that advocates the violent overthrow of the government. And in 1919, a guy named Benjamin Gitlow was arrested for publishing a left-wing manifesto calling for the establishment of socialism both through labor strikes and through any other means necessary, including, presumably, violent means. At his trial, though, Gitlow pointed out that nothing actually happened as a result of his pamphlet. There was no violence. There weren't really labor strikes. There was no socialist revolution. New York didn't become a socialist state. Six years later, in 1925, in the case of Gitlow versus New York, the Supreme Court was confronted with a question about the legacy of the clear and present danger test from Schenck versus United States. You'll recall from our last episode that Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes, in a case about a different pamphlet written by a different socialist during World War I, said that there were a lot of things that would be protected speech in ordinary times that were not protected in wartime. The First Amendment doesn't protect your right to shout fire in a crowded theater, he said, and it doesn't protect your right to hinder the war effort. The question Holmes wrote in every case is whether the words used are used in such circumstances and are of such a nature as to create a clear and present danger that they will bring about the substantive evils that Congress has a right to prevent. And Gitlow, in his case, said, obviously my pamphlet didn't create a clear and present danger of establishing socialism or inciting violence, because that was six years ago and nothing actually happened. Relying on Shank, the Supreme Court upheld Gitlow's conviction. But interestingly, Justice Holmes himself dissented in that case. He said the call to action from Gitlow was vague and abstract, and Gitlow didn't actually command the allegiance of many followers. There was no clear and present danger, Holmes concluded. The whole episode highlighted the difficulty of taking these different tests and applying them to concrete circumstances. What constitutes a clear and present danger? How can we even know in the moment what the consequences of some speech will be in the future? How do we square these anarchy and sedition statutes with the First Amendment? The First Amendment says in absolute terms that Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech, or of the press, or of the right of the people to peaceably assemble. And yet these laws at the state and national level make it a crime to say certain things, to write or publish certain things, and to join certain organizations. And so the court in the 20th century is constantly wrestling with the question of the limits of the First Amendment. And typically in this area, it involves socialists or communists who advocate the overthrow of the existing form of government in the United States. That threat was the subject of the Smith Act in 1940. 
The U.S. had not entered the war yet, but we were witnessing the rise of fascism in Italy and Nazism in Germany. We were keen on the threat posed by communism in the USSR and imperialism in Japan. No one looking at the world at that time would have thought there was anything inevitable about the endurance of our form of constitutional government. And to protect against those threats domestically, it was quite common to see legal sanctions against advocating the overthrow of the U.S. government or joining an organization that advocated the overthrow of the U.S. government. In this context, joining a socialist or communist party was itself taken to be evidence of such subversive activity. And this is just what the Smith Act prohibited. Eugene Dennis was the general secretary of the Communist Party USA. And along with some other communists, Dennis was charged under the Smith Act in 1948. And the Supreme Court then issued a decision in his case in 1951, Dennis v. United States. Here's the thing, though. Prosecutors in the case didn't allege that Dennis ever personally advocated the overthrow of the U.S. government. Instead, they argued that the tenets of communism, as expounded by its leading theoreticians, did advocate the overthrow of the government. And the spread of communism and communist ideology, therefore, represented an existential threat to the United States. This is 1951. The Cold War is well underway, and the Supreme Court upholds Dennis's conviction. Along the way, though, the court makes some critical adjustments to the clear and present danger test and then sets the stage for a reversal, of course, in the case of Brandenburg versus Ohio in 1969. Before we get to Brandenburg, though, consider the range of opinions at the Supreme Court in Eugene Dennis's case. Writing for a majority, Chief Justice Vinson made a distinction between advocacy and discussion. It was okay to discuss communism, to read the Communist Manifesto as part of an academic exercise, he said. But the moment one begins to advocate ideas that will lead to the overthrow of the government, then they're left unprotected by the First Amendment. We reject any principle of governmental helplessness in the face of preparation for revolution, which principle carried to its logical conclusion must lead to anarchy, he said. And the Smith Act was not problematic because, as Vinson concluded, it's directed at advocacy, not discussion. Justice Frankfurter concurred with the judgment to uphold Dennis's conviction, but he thought courts were simply not equipped to make these kinds of judgments. The demands of free speech and the interest of national security have to be weighed against each other. In a democracy, the legislature, Frankfurter said, rather than the courts, should do the weighing or the balancing. Frankfurter then would have had the court defer to legislative judgments in this area. Justice Jackson, who had overseen the Nuremberg trials after World War II, also concurred in the judgment, but thought the clear and present danger test made no sense in this context. Instead, he would simply apply what he called the rule of reason. Judges, he thought, could tell the difference between a guy making a speech on a street corner, circulating a few incendiary pamphlets, and a well-organized nationwide conspiracy. But we could never really know whether this one man's lone actions would create a clear and present danger. As Jackson said, we would have to foresee and predict the effectiveness of communist propaganda, opportunities for infiltration, whether and when a time will come that they consider propitious for action, and whether and how fast our existing government will deteriorate. It is enough simply to say that Dennis is engaging in a widespread conspiracy to commit an unlawful act, according to Jackson. Judges can distinguish that from some crackpot just letting off steam. But we don't have to ask whether or not there is a clear and present danger for each specific action. It's enough to say that they're part of a broader movement, a broader conspiracy to take down the U.S. government. Justices Douglas and Black offered dissents in the case. According to Douglas, there just was no clear and present danger here. The case involved people coming together to read and discuss the works of Marx and Lenin. But they weren't teaching people how to commit criminal acts. They weren't training people in methods of bomb making, assassination, or street warfare. 
And so Douglas had a particular take on what constituted a clear and present danger, and what could be punished as such by the government, but he was still operating within that framework. Justice Black, for his part, took issue with the whole proceeding. The First Amendment protects the freedom of speech and assembly. Dennis assembled with others to talk about communism and to plan together some publications for some later date. That, he thought, was protected by the Constitution. He registered his hope that in calmer times, as Black said, when present pressures, passions, and fears subside, this or some later court will restore the First Amendment liberties to the high preferred place where they belong in a free society. That was 1951. Fast forward now to 1969 with a different kind of threat to public order. Not communists, but members of the Ku Klux Klan. A leader of the KKK had been convicted of a crime in Ohio when he was filmed by a local television crew saying at a rally, quote, We're not a revengeant organization, but if our president, our Congress, our Supreme Court continues to suppress the white Caucasian race, it's possible that there might have to be some revengeance taken. We are marching on Congress July the 4th, 400,000 strong. From there, we are dividing into two groups, one group to march on St. Augustine, Florida, the other group to march into Mississippi. The Ohio law made it illegal to advocate crime, sabotage, violence, or unlawful methods of terrorism as a means of accomplishing industrial or political reform. Brandenburg said his group might take some revengeance and then specifically said that they would be marching on Congress. Did Brandenburg's speech violate that statute? And if it did, was it nonetheless protected by the First Amendment? The court here sided with Brandenburg, and in the process they put together a new test for determining incitement of violence that remains with us today. Building on some previous cases that had happened after Dennis, the court in Brandenburg said that the constitutional guarantees of free speech and free press do not permit a state to forbid or proscribe advocacy of the use of force or of law violation, except where such advocacy is directed and is likely to incite or produce such action. Did you catch that? The court took the advocacy versus discussion distinction from Dennis and ratcheted it up a bit. It isn't just advocacy that can be punished, but advocacy that is directed and likely to produce some imminent action. Later in the case, the court highlights then what it calls incitement to imminent lawless action. Under that standard, the earlier cases of Shank, Gitlow, and Dennis look very different. None of those really involved imminent lawless activity, and under the court's modern standard from Brandenburg, those pamphlets and speeches and activities and organizations would have been protected. Now, we can't talk about this case without talking about current events. And so we're coming back to President Trump's speech on January 6th. Here's a relevant excerpt. As this enormous crowd shows, we have truth and justice on our side. We have a deep and enduring love for America in our hearts. We love our country. We have overwhelming pride in this great country, and we have it deep in our souls. Together, we are determined to defend and preserve government of the people, by the people, and for the people. Our brightest days are before us. Our greatest achievements still wait. I think one of our great achievements will be election security, because nobody until I came along had any idea how corrupt our elections were. And again, most people would stand there at 9 o'clock in the evening and say, I want to thank you very much. And they go off to some other life. But I said, something's wrong here. Something's really wrong. Can't have happened. And we fight. We fight like hell. And if you don't fight like hell, you're not going to have a country anymore. 
Our exciting adventures and boldest endeavors have not yet begun. My fellow Americans, for our movement, for our children, and for our beloved country, and I say this, despite all that's happened, the best is yet to come. So we're going to, we're going to walk down Pennsylvania Avenue. I love Pennsylvania Avenue. And we're going to the Capitol, and we're going to try and give, you know, the Democrats are hopeless. They're never voting for anything. Not even one vote. But we're going to try and give our Republicans, the weak ones, because the strong ones don't need any of our help, we're tr going to try and give them the kind of pride and boldness that they need to take back our country. So let's walk down Pennsylvania Avenue. I want to thank you all. God bless you and God bless America. Thank you all for being here. After that speech, as you know, some in the audience then breached the Capitol building and the riots that ensued left several people dead. In January, the House of Representatives then filed one article of impeachment against President Trump, alleging that he incited the crowd that later stormed the United States Capitol building. In the impeachment trial, Trump's defense lawyers then pointed to the case of Brandenburg versus Ohio to say that the president's speech was protected by the First Amendment, that his speech did not amount to the advocacy of imminent lawless action. Listen to this. The Supreme Court of the United States over 50 years ago laid out a clear test to determine whether speech is incitement. First, the speech in question must explicitly or implicitly encourage the use of violence or lawless action. But here, the president's speech called for peaceful protest. Second, the speaker must intend that his speech will result in the use of violence or lawless action. The president clearly deplores rioters and political violence and did so throughout his term as president and never hesitated to express his admiration for the men and women that protect this country. The third element under the Brandenburg test is the imminent use of violence, imminent use of violence. In other words, right then, the imminent use of violence or lawless action must be the, the likely result of the speech. Well, that argument is completely eviscerated by the fact that the violence was pre-planned, as confirmed by the FBI, Department of Justice, and even the House managers. And the House managers prosecuting the case said the opposite, that Trump clearly violated the standards set in Brandenburg. And Maryland Representative Jamie Raskin went even farther, and he offered this extended riff on the idea of shouting fire in a crowded theater. Worse than someone who falsely shouts fire in a crowded theater. It's more like a case where the town fire chief, who's paid to put out fires, sends a mob not to yell fire in a crowded theater, but to actually set the theater on fire. And who then, when the fire alarms go off and the calls start flooding into the fire department, asking for help, does nothing but sit back, encourage the mob to continue its rampage, and watch the fire spread on TV with glee and delight. So then we say this fire chief should never be allowed to hold this public job again, and you're fired and you're permanently disqualified, and he objects. And he says, we're violating his free speech rights 
just because he's pro-mob or pro-fire or whatever it might be. Come on. I mean, you, you really don't need to go to law school to figure out what's wrong with that argument. Here's the key. Undoubtedly, a private person can run around on the, street, on the street expressing his or her support for the enemies of the United States and advocating the overthrow of the United States government. You've got a right to do that under the First Amendment. But if the president spent all of his days doing that, uttering the exact same words, expressing support for the enemies of the United States and for overthrowing the government, is there anyone here who doubts that this would be a violation of his oath of office to preserve protect and defend the Constitution of the United States, and that he or she could be impeached for doing that. All of this was, in some ways, beside the point. The Constitution gives the House of Representatives the sole power to impeach, and the Senate is given the sole power to try all impeachments. Impeachment is not a criminal prosecution, and the consequences of impeachment go no further than removal from office. Someone who's been impeached from office has not been convicted of a crime. They don't go to jail, they don't get fined. Impeachment is a political process, and it requires a political judgment. The Supreme Court is, by design, not involved at all in the impeachment proceedings. And so it's interesting to note the degree to which the Supreme Court's precedents in this area of law nonetheless structured our recent debate about incitement speech and the reach of the First Amendment, even in the context of Congress's impeachment proceedings. And we'll return to this, the question of speech and the reach of the First Amendment, when we continue our exploration next week. Thank you.